Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. My name is Guru Nishan, and I'm your host. At the beginning of every episode, I like to read the intentions for why I started this podcast. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other therapy and support as needed, to draw your own conclusions and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. On today's episode, I want to welcome Qatar Diamond. She was born in 1961 and grew up in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles County within a reform Jewish upbringing. First exposure to 3HO was about 10 years old. She started practicing Kundalini yoga at age 14. She took Sikh vows at age 19, had a, set, had a semi-arranged marriage at 20, which lasted two years. She dropped out of college before marriage and worked as a secretary for a 3HO chiropractor for 10 years. Married again in 1986 at age of 25, 
She continued to work until the end of her pregnancy and had her son in 1991. Her second marriage ended in 1995, and she left 3HO while simultaneously getting a divorce. She's a full-time feng shui consultant, published author, and mental illness advocate, and still resides in the Southern California area. Co-parenting her disabled son, now 31 years old, she interacts with her ex-husband, who remains in 3HO to this day. You can learn more about her brilliant writings, work, and advocacy at her websites that are listed in the show notes. I want to welcome you to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I um, reached out to you because I saw a post that you had in the uh, Facebook group that uh, is the Beyond the Cage Transitions group or whatever. And I didn't know, quote, who you were, but I always find it fascinating who's participating in that kind of like um, memory lane pool a bit. Um, and I was like, holy smokes, you were from far back. And so I just was like, would you share? And then suddenly you told me that your first range marriage was to my uncle and that's uncle Monty. And he was had a previous episode. Um, so anyway, thank you for being here. And I appreciate your willingness to, to share. <laughs> right. And you just made me think about how I even found out about, you know, Pamela's book and the whole thing that started at the beginning of 2020. I have a friend, um, she actually owns a jewelry business. She's in uh, the South Bay area and she called me, she's, Cartar, do you know what's going on? I said, no, she's the whole thing, check it out. It's, you know, because she knew um, several Kundalini yoga teachers who never met Yogi Bhajan, who are all just freaking out completely. And I went on to, you know, see what was up. And I, of course, read Pamela's book in one night. And, and I wanted to, you know, loosely participate in those couple of Facebook groups, um, say what I could to people who are still struggling with the issue. You know, I've, I left the group 26, seven years ago, um, but was in it for 21 years and started at a young age. And, um, and then, you know, I've reconnected with a few people, which has been nice. And, uh, and so, yeah, I make comments here and there. I check and see, you know, what's going on. Um, so that's been, you know, actually a good thing in many ways, but, in, on those Facebook groups, people can't emote or talk about what your format is, which is so wonderful. It's so great that you've done this and have archived it where, you know, people can really stretch out, tell their story and um, people from all different angles, whether they're loosely related to 3HO or, or whether they've been in it for 50 years, they can start hearing and corroborating other people's issues and stories. Yeah. Yeah. I found that it's been really a, a profound space because suddenly it allows us to um, remember parts of our own experience during this same time frame that somebody else is telling their story and it pierces our veils of remembrance and awareness, which offers such tremendous collective as well as personal healing. Um, and far more than I even imagined, you know, the, this podcast platform really began from a place of, my eight-year-old child angry that nobody was telling the truth. And, and so in 2020, when all this came out, that's what I felt inside was like, I love that we're having this Facebook group. And I love that we're having these Zoom calls because we're finally talking about stuff out loud to each other, but it's mm -hmm. still in a private domain. And what if and we even, could bring it to a public place? 
and even things that I didn't know, lots of things that I didn't know uh, myself, more revelations and more validations of why I left. Um, and even with Monty, he said things, I had no idea those, some of those horrible things even happened to him. And I, you know, at the end of our marriage and, and post, and I, I, you know, I sometimes wonder if there were certain things that I, if I had known about beforehand, whether I would have left sooner myself, you know, so it's been quite an education. I can't uh, agree more. Just all the parts that are trapped in silence and we don't even know it because it was just a part of what we did to survive in those times. Um, so take us back because when reading your bio, when I received it, Katara, I was really like, whoa, because you started so young and immediately I was like, how come? So um, was it, you know, through your parents or just give us a little background on how how your journey began and, and tell us your story here. Well, at the, the very first introduction to 3HO, um, my mother used to sew and knit. She made almost all my clothes as a kid. And she used to shop at this fabric store out in the San Fernando Valley. I think it was Canoga Park. And she was friendly with the owner, a lady named Lorraine Sklar and her husband, Sherman. And their son was Dale Sklar, who became Bisob Dialsing. And I remember as a little kid going into the store and I saw Bisob there a few times. And you know, the story behind him, he got into 3HO when he was 15, he became a minister, he was, he learned Gurmukhi, unlike a lot of people in 3HO, he actually really dove into the Sikh Dharma part, kind of like Ram Das Kar. And he was like an example and an inspiration to so many people. But when I saw him as a 10 or 11 year old, I just thought, okay, he's not Indian, and he's wearing a turban, and this all looks very exotic. Um, so I was intrigued. Um, and then a few years later, he died. Um, I don't remember having much of a conversation with my mother, you know, about the fact that her friend's son joined this exotic group. But when the call came that there was a funeral, we were told to wear white. And I had never been to a funeral before, but I had watched enough TV <laughs> to know that people usually wear black to a funeral. And so again, I was kind of curious, oh, we're going to wear white. I, I don't think anyone in our family had an all white outfit, but we did our best. And um, we went to the funeral. I don't remember what it was. It was probably a Gurdwara and it was probably like in a con pot, you know, coming to conclusion. As we drove away from Guru Ramdas Ashram, it was at night and I saw people standing on or sitting on the sidewalk. I know they were they were serving longer. That's what was happening. But this voice outside of myself said, "You're going to be with these people one day." And I was just I I don't know whether I had just started practicing Kundalini Yoga. I was 14, you know, when he died, 1975, or whether I started practicing months later. But when they bizarre. all died. Yeah. And okay. I remember thinking, well, that's a weird thought or that's a weird message. Um, <laughs> and lo and behold, I did get involved at a very young age. And it just it's just something I mentioned because some of us, if not all of us, have pondered, was it destiny? Did we have any choice in the matter at all <laughs> in becoming members of 3HO or having these experiences with Yogi Bhajan, did we have a choice? You know, so it almost seemed like so faded. 
um, or destiny uh, for the good and the bad, you know, and a lot of people try to, you know, rationalize or they try to philosophize about what happened to them and the lessons they've learned and whatnot. I can go over that, you know, in our talk um, today, but um, I, I got involved uh, mostly through my sister. I have a sister who's three years older than me and she had started taking Kundalini yoga classes and I joined in. My mother wasn't thrilled, <laughs> but I don't, and with me in particular, I was a straight A student, you know, honor student. And here I am, you know, hanging out with people who were a good 10, 15 years older than me. And I, um, I know she was worried about me. And um, what started out, I was going to the classes uh, with this man named Steve Zellman. And for whatever reason, he had an ashram in, in Canoga Park. And that's another thing, you know, to tell some of the newcomers. Back in the mid, late 70s, if you wanted to do yoga, you had to kind of align yourself with Yogi Bhajan, Swami Satchidananda, Muktananda, all these different yogis and swamis, because there weren't yoga studios, you know, like the, the way there are now. You were kind of affiliating yourself for the most part with different spiritual paths as well. Um, and so Steve, he was a great teacher. And he, for whatever reason, he couldn't teach anymore um, or the night that we were all gathered. So he brought in Nanak Dave Singh the infamous Nanak Dave Singh. And so I had a whole relationship with Nanak Dave as my yoga teacher. Um, and so when I ultimately found out about his horrible behavior and abuses in India, decades later. I was like, that's way later. Keep us present when you first meet him. Oh, Tell us the story. Stay oh, present. We want to hear the story. <laughs> yeah. We want to hear your experience oh, in because the mysticism to get us in is very important versus jumping to the reflection. Right. So stay in yeah. it. So you start taking, okay. so Nanak Dave is the sub. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, so many stories with him and here I am, I'm 16, he's 29. My mother must've been freaking out, you know, and, and, and handsome, me home right? Home. Very handsome. I thought he was very hot, but in, <laughs> in fact, in fact, um, he used to call me his little Sut Simran. And <laughs> now that has all kinds of other ramifications that I didn't even understand back then. I didn't know who Setsuman was. I just thought she was one of Yogi Bhajan's secretaries. Um, Interesting. I helped, him, you know, I helped him organize things. And clearly I was like his most devoted student. Um, so at 16, you're the devoted student of Nanak Dave who took Dave. over the classes <laughs> yeah. of the, in Canoga Park in Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. One oh time my. he had, he called he you the little Sat Simran, huh? His little Sat Simran. Hilarious. Keep going. And when I, when I started gaining weight, he started calling me Prashad Ball. <laughs> you know, I weighed Prashad Ball. <laughs> yeah. A little uh, shaming there going on. Oh, this yeah. A little, a little uh, playful Prashad shaming, huh? Right. Wow. <laughs> but one time he had car trouble. And we're over at Cal State Northridge at that point. It was a, a class through their, you know, community education program. And uh, a janitor sticks his head in the in the door and says, your teacher has car trouble. He's not showing up, but Denise can teach the class. That was me, Denise Carr. And, you know, I just went up in front of all these adults. And because I was doing kundalini yoga every day and I was 40 day sadhanas and 
you know, memorizing yoga sets, it was no big deal. I just taught a yoga set and a meditation relaxation series and voila, that's how you became a yoga teacher back then. You didn't take expensive teacher training courses and go through the whole rigmarole that people in the last 20 or so years have had to do. It's like if you did yoga and wanted to teach, fine. In fact, I went on to teach a yoga, uh, you know, I had a yoga club at UC Santa Barbara. But uh, so I taught the class and we had a number of, you know, escapades like one one time he wanted everybody in his yoga class to try nutmeg. And um, I didn't know what to anticipate. This was a school night, too. <laughs> so, um, what year was this? This was, you know, probably 1978. Okay. And him and his wife, Gurnam, they're making like curry in the kitchen and they're pouring mounds of freshly um, shaved ground up nutmeg in there just so we could get it down because nutmeg tastes like pencil shavings it's horrible (laughs) um but we were you know eating it in this curry and then uh we all went off to see um superman with christopher reeves the movie (laughs) so about an hour in the movie theater gets this this big and all of a sudden i'm like i am fried i'm high i'm hallucinating here um, we went back to his ashram. At that point, Nanak had already, he had rented a house in Reseda. So we were already, you know, away from the college setting and we were at his newly founded ashram. He and you lived at home still? You didn't live in the ashram because you're 16 at this point. So you're just right, hanging I, out with this crew. I lived at home and my mother would get mad at me whenever I'd come home late from yoga class. <laughs> um, one time I just leveled with her. I said, mom, would you rather I be cruising, you know, Van Nuys Boulevard? Come on, I'm a good kid. I'm taking yoga. Give it a break, you know. And so she backed <laughs> off, you know. Um, so, and I could have been taking drugs and being, you know, uh, uh, whatever. But I was so good, you know, in so many ways. And, so devoted. Um, so early yeah. devoted. Interesting. Yeah. So, so we went back to non-accept. Everybody was tripping out. Um, and I finally, I said to him, I said, you know, I have to go home and I'm really high and <laughs> what's going to happen here? He said, hold on. I mean, he was like the, the, the alchemist, you know. So he grabs an onion, he squeezes it and grinds it up and manages to give me like a shot glass of onion juice. He says, this will take care of you. And um, it did. Like, in, it, I could almost feel it going into my bloodstream and clearing things out. And in like five minutes, I was normal. I wasn't high anymore. My headphone here is slipping. So, um, so I went home and, you know, my mother was none the wiser, just like kids who smoke pot and their parents are clueless, you know? (laughs) Um, And I think my first solstice was with Nanak Dave and all of these yoga students caravanning there. We drove there. Um, And I think that was a thing. I think different ashram directors and yoga teachers like to bring their motley crew of yoga students to the feet of the master and see what I've done. I've collected a bunch of, you know, people for you. Um, But at that time, my my focus was on Nanak Dave Singh. I had never met, you know, Yogi Bhajan at that point. And um, so we made it halfway there. I think the first day we camped out in like the woods in Flagstaff, Arizona. I don't remember. It was it was a little spooky, but there were a lot of us. So I I wasn't really afraid. And we literally all just snuggled together 
like a pack of sardines. <laughs> you know, some people were in sleeping bags, but I remember Nonic Dave, he, we were spooning. I mean, he was snuggled up to me right behind me. And I remember thinking, this is a little inappropriate. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm reading into this, you know. Mm. So he had his hand around my waist. And I remember thinking, all right, if the hand goes up or if the hand goes down (laughs) at all, that's going to tell me where he's at. And it didn't. He just snuggled with me the whole night. And I don't know whether he was testing me to see if I would initiate anything or not, but it was still in the wholesome range. So I wasn't at that point disillusioned or upset with him. Not at all. In fact, I used to give him foot massages all the time. You know, our, that that's, was the other thing about him as a yoga teacher when he was 29, 30 years old. He was Mr. Hippy Dippy Groovy Happy Man. He was always smiling, telling jokes. I didn't suspect the dark side that came into fruition in India years later, not at all. But I do know that when I, once I had finally become a Sikh, um, he, he backed off from me a little bit. He wasn't as friendly. He had also moved out of town, but I remember one time he came to LA and, oh, that guy, he was trying to, I think, promote a script, a martial arts movie script. I don't know if he had written it, but he was gonna be the star. And he wanted to be like the next Steven Seagal with his gut gun and everything. And at that point, I, I was thinking, oh, this is a little pathetic because I had lived in L.A. and I knew that the entertainment industry is like for young people. <laughs> he was already you know, 40 or something. And I remember thinking, oh, he's got a pipe dream here that's not going to manifest. And then I wasn't even really aware you know, of what happened to him after that point. But he he wasn't. He wasn't all that friendly when I was no longer his adoring student, you know, who was focused Mm. on him. Um, What I want to pause and just point out that I feel like you might be um, lightly touching on is just that as this young, uh, you are a devoted, committed student that kind of then kind of been given this persona and you didn't know the meaning of it at the time, but to call you a little Simran is like to have this one serving him, right? So that the model that's, that is exposing itself a bit of the devoted servant, right? That the woman that's serving, uh, massaging your feet. And, and here you are the student, not his wife, because he's married at that time. And so how a lot of um, the male yoga teachers were learning that persona, that their yoga students kind of, they were getting their personal following. And the point around ashrams caravanning to solstice is a really good one too, because I've heard some of those stories where there was like, almost like a representation, like, are you from this ashram? And woo, and then are you from this ashram? Woo? Like how many yeah. people came to the big event from each region was a part of like the celebratory um, uh, experience of like our crew. It's like a, um, a network marketing, a multi-level marketing <laughs> scam. <laughs> That's like so Oriental funny. Secrets. Yeah, I mean, it could have been it's- like, Here's it's a the kickback, same. you know, for giving me uh, 10 more tantric yoga admissions. I don't know. It, I was very it's, devoted, you know. In fact, I wanted to mention, I have a little notes here. In 1977, you know, I've, I'm, I'm practicing yoga for a couple of years at that point. Time Magazine had an article. If anybody wants to just Google search it, Time Magazine, Yogi Bhajan, 
you'll see, I just read it the other day. I hadn't looked at it in decades where they kind of laid it all out right then. They mentioned the sexual impropriety, the, the businesses, the fact that he had given himself this title, Siri Singsaw, which doesn't exist in you know, the traditional historical Sikh tradition. And, and I wrote a letter at 16, I guess I was you know, the budding writer. I wrote a letter to the, um, whatever, the editorial section coming to Yogi Bhajan's defense. And I had never met him, but I said something about how, you know, I'm friendly with so many Sikhs and the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Everybody's an excellent human being, and, you know? So I was already doing PR, you know, for 3HO at that age. Incredible. Um, and this is that same time that you're talking about taking this first caravan to solstice. Yeah. Because that's around 77. That. Yeah. That's a little before. Yeah. Cause that's around 77. Well, I didn't go to my first solstice till I was about 18. I think I was the summer I was 18 that I went. Um, and was and it in New Mexico that you were, you were going to New Mexico from California? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the reality also is that plenty of people couldn't even really afford airfare. So of course we were going to drive there when gas was I, cheap. No, <laughs> so. No, but I mean, that's yeah. common. Yeah. I remember always driving to Solstice, but you're, you're really capturing a particular time. So I really want you to go back to the experience of you being young and, and having these moments because it, it paints such vivid pictures. Um, uh, and I know you brought up the Time magazine and I was quite astounded about that date too. When I saw that magazine, it was like 1977, there it was all spelled out, but what nobody paid attention. I was born in that year. Yeah. And I thought it was just slander like everybody else. I'm, I'm, and I'm sure that, you know, if it wasn't Nanak Dave, it was somebody else who just said, ah, oh, this is people who don't understand. They don't understand the, the Eastern teacher, you know, the Saturn teacher stuff. They don't understand that, you know, so. Okay. Um, so here you are, your teacher is Nanak Dev. This is your first event. There's some cuddling going on, but it's really just kind of one big snuggle puddle. Um, and so there's kind of like, is this good? Is this not good? That makes sense. Is he there with his wife too? Is his whole family there at this point? Uh, yeah. I don't recall her being, you know, uh, at the, the caravan event. She could have been, but I know that she was like, she appeared to me, even as a child, a teenager, I could sense that she wasn't happy. I could sense a certain distance. Um, she was very sweet. I don't know what became of her, but she um, she was constantly on diets. She was one of those people that would go on a celery fast for six months um, or a beet fast. Um, I don't think she was thin enough, you know, for Nanak Dave or Yogi Bhajan. And so I saw somebody who wasn't, you know, didn't appear to be very happy, but she, um, you know, and then also at that time and continuing on for many, many years, there were women that would just end up going to India for a while, or they'd go to another, they'd be separated from their husbands for whatever reason. Um, So we saw that going on. And, um, you know, I was just getting more and more into it. And I went up to UC Santa Barbara, there weren't, there was no Sikh or, you know, 3HO ashram in Santa Barbara, I was it. And I, I started a Kundalini yoga club. In fact, Nanak Dave came up one time to do a gong meditation and he, he didn't stay in my dorm room, but he stayed in this like community room across the hallway. And again, a little inappropriate when I think about it, because he was at that point in his early thirties. And there were other people who'd come to visit 
you know, friends in the dorm and they'd crash, you know, on the couch in the community room. But, and it, you know, it was just, um, it was strange times. And, um, uh, you, you know, it's funny, I had forgotten about this. When I first applied to um, go to school at UC Santa Barbara and be in the dorm situation, I wanted my own room because I already had, I was already doing sadhana, you know, at three in the morning. And I wrote a letter because they had just a few single occupancy rooms. Everybody else had a roommate. And I wrote a letter to the college saying, I need my own room. I get up at three in the morning. I do yoga and I chant and I will be very, very uh, upsetting to another roommate. They won't get any sleep. And I really, this is my spiritual you know, path. <laughs> so they gave me my own room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and um, I got there. I told the janitor, I don't want this bed. And he was like, Oh, you're getting a new bed? I go, no, I don't want a bed. So I slept on a sheepskin in a dorm room <laughs> for a couple of years. I was very devoted. And yes. so and everything is leading up, leading up. But I was having like, you know, like a reality crisis. Like, what am I doing in college? I'm a creative writing major. This isn't preparing me for any real job. Um And, uh, you know, getting more and more into the whole 3HO lifestyle by myself. Um, and uh, so I just, you know, I dropped out of college, but I, 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 um, I remember one, one night, very memorable, everybody in our dorm, 40, 20 gals and 20 guys, each on separate co-ed wings. We, um, we all did magic mushrooms one night. And I remember thinking, okay, I got to do this now. Cause once I become a Sikh, I'm not going to be allowed to do this anymore. <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> um, uh, so things were, you know, things were sort of gearing up where they wanted to 3HO LA, I think wanted to sort of bring me back in and, and, um, you know, now I'm remembering something else. I, I had a full scholarship at UC Santa Barbara and I used to go to their admissions office every quarter and, it was kind of, it's so stupid that they didn't do this internally, but they would cut me a check for what my tuition cost. And then I would take the check to another department to pay for my, my schooling and my books. And one time they issued me two extra checks. And I went there, and I said, you've overpaid me. And they're like, no, we haven't. And I said, okay. And I went to my dorm room and thought about it for a while. And I went back and said, no, you've overpaid me. <laughs> No, we haven't. Everything's fine. And so what do I do? I look at this money. It was a few hundred dollars. I'm going to Tantric. <laughs> and then I went and I bought a whole bunch of yoga manuals. But again, that was my priority. That was, you know, my, my um, whole emphasis and, um, and teaching Kundalini yoga up there. I, I earned the title in my dorm of being, I was nominated most extraterrestrial. <laughs> was so strange. <laughs> this was before I even put a turban on. Um, and uh, away we went, you know, I just, I finally, I thought, you know what, I, I don't know what I'm doing in college. This isn't really working. Maybe I need to take a break and rethink this. Um, and I'm not sure of the exact order of things, but I probably went to a tantric. I probably did it with Monty because me and Guru Han's car and Siri Bonnie car. And, you know, we, the people who were in their young 20s or, you know, early 20s kind of hung out together. And, you know, there were a lot of matchmaker yentas in Siri Singh Saab's staff. And 
somebody got the great idea that Monty and I should get married. And how old are you? At that time, 19, you said 20. Okay. uh, 20. Yeah. And so I can remember calling my mother and saying, well, you know, I'm going to get married to this young man. And she may have asked me how long I'd known him. I might've volunteered that I've known him a few months. Um, And at that juncture, I fault my mother. My mother should have said, hold, you know, cool your jets. Hold on a second. You've got, why don't you finish college? Why don't you be engaged for a while? If it's meant to be, he'll be there, you know, in two years or what have you. But I think she was afraid. I think she had already been told maybe by some of her friends, your daughter's in a cult, but if you don't want to lose her completely, just play along. Don't, you know, try to upset the apple cart. And so, you know, she really should have had a deprogrammer (laughs) come and get me. But what did she do? What is, I mean, she was just like, oh, okay. okay." Had she, had she already, had you already um, been going further and further in that she didn't know how to access you? Because by this point, it sounds like your focus point had really shifted to Kundalini Yoga and the the community that you were connecting with. And that's a, that was like a pretty hip young adult group at the time. Like you're talking about Nanak Dev and, and uh, Gurhan's car or whatever. Like this is the young adult hip crew. Yeah. I mean, she just didn't say no, no, Kartar, you know, or Denise, whatever I'm going to call you. (laughs) She didn't say, just slow down. Are you, do you know him well enough? Think about it. There's no rush. She just kind of went along with it. Now, maybe she was crying, you know, and freaking out on her own. Yeah. But she didn't share that with me. And, and I bring it up because, you know, there's, al- there's always that question of how, how do smart people do dumb things? How do people get involved in cults? What kind of family upbringing do they have? Do they have multi-generational abuse? You know, what kind of dysfunctional family did I come from that my mother and my father didn't say zip? when I was doing these things that were so different and so counter to what I know they wanted to have, you know, have see happen in my life. Um, So she didn't say much. I mean, she was already, you know, sewing me curtas and stuff, (laughs) you know, and trying to be helpful. But Mm. um, after she died, I found a letter that she had written to me, but had never sent where she did emote about how worried she was about me and concerned and, whatnot, Mm. you know. Um, But in any case, um, you know, at that time, and for the few people or whoever's, you know, listening who doesn't know about it, arranged marriages were the norm back then. And um, in fact, I have a, a good friend to this day who is a Vedic astrologer, and she used to do a lot of readings for people in 3HO. And people would come to her with all their problems and misery and, and whatnot. And she said to me years later, she says, you know, Qatar, in the Indian tradition, yes, there are arranged marriages, but they check with an astrologer to see if the couple is inherently compatible. You know, it's not just about dowries and status and whatnot. And she says, I can't even understand these arranged marriages that your teacher or your former teacher put together. They're the worst combinations imaginable. She says that wouldn't have been done, you know, in the Indian tradition. So, you know, she was just mystified and, you know, 
all these long suffering people with paired up with people that they really should never have been with and wouldn't have seek, sought out themselves, you know, anyway. Now with Monty, he was hilarious. He was a sweetheart. I was very naive. I, I didn't even suspect that any gay man would be interested in being in 3HO because it's such a stereotypical male-female role-playing kind of group that, at least back then, um, I didn't I didn't suspect, I didn't think any, you know, but he would even want to do that lifestyle. They were not straight, you know, so it took a while for things to um, come out. And um, we, what I came to find out through Monty's conversation with you is that he had had a few different interactions with Yogi Bhajan about this whole topic and our marriage not working. I was thinking in the very beginning, I was thinking, oh, you know, we granted we hardly knew each other when we got married. Maybe we just need to be friends and get to know each other more before, you know, there's more intimacy, etc. And again, I was so naive. I, I didn't understand that a 22-year-old man is completely horny and could have sex with anything. You know, I was just like, I was just thinking in terms of, you know, maybe he was just a shy person or what have you. And so uh it later came to be known through other people, um, the Yenta, you know, circle that our marriage wasn't had, had issues. And so Monty relayed to you that he had had, a, you know, a few meetings with with uh, Yogi Bhajan. I call, you know, I call him Yogi Bhajan. At first, I just wanted to call him, you know, the con artist formerly known as whatever. But I, um who was it? Yogi Bear wasn't a yogi, so we'll call him Yogi Bhajan for the rest of you know <laughs> this conversation. Um, so, so apparently, you know, Monty was being raked over the coals at other junctures that I didn't even know about. And then we had one like kind of final meeting where I was brought in, and Yogi Bhajan just you know, and he had all his you know A-lister people sitting at his feet in that room in the back. Uh, which goes totally against, you know, the principles of marriage counseling, psychotherapy, confidentiality, just the way people's personal business was just there for everybody to consume and gossip about. It's just so horrible. Um, but he said something, he goes, I don't know whether he said it to Monty or just to the room. He just said, you know, if you weren't a Sikh, you'd be one of those fags in San Francisco. And I was like, Oh, really? Well, oh, that's what's going on here? You know, and I, so I was stunned, but nobody came to talk to me or comfort me. Nobody came to us in, individually who said you should probably do this or that. It was just, it was just like blah out there. And Monty, you know, he left, he took off one day. Um, I didn't even know, you know, where he was for a few weeks. And I, I just didn't know what kind of things went on afterwards, you know, how he relayed to you how he was penniless and this whole thing. And I just feel horrible. Uh, I don't know what I could have done at that time because I had my own stuff to work through. But, um, you know, it was it was a, a chapter that we had to experience for whatever reasons. And then Monty called me like 20 years later <laughs> and he wanted to apologize. And, and we had already seen each other a couple of times at you know, through our mutual friend, Akasha. And I thought he knew that, you know, there was no resentment at, on my part at all. But I had to tell him, I said, Monty, 
we were both in a cult, you know, we were victims. Um, don't feel bad at all. It's fine. You know, you're a great guy. So, um, so we're, we're good, you know, (laughs) I want to, I want to say, I appreciate how you're um, weaving in and out of like having the reflection of hearing his, his, um, episode on, on the uncomfortable conversations podcast with, um, your reflection back to your time. Um, but I'm wondering about like what it was like for you. You're a young woman. Was it kind of mystical to get arranged marriage? Like that was a part of it. And you were a chosen one to now be a part of that. And then being in naive, you're not even noticing what's going on for him is what I hear you saying here. He's having several meetings, getting berated for listeners that don't know, you can go back and listen to Monty's episode. Um, for being gay. So Yogi Bhajan was berating Monty for that. But what I hear you saying is you, you weren't, you were unaware that that was even taking place. What was going on for you in that marriage? If you didn't know that was, what were you doing at that time? He was working at Yogi, you were young married. Are you working somewhere? Are you living in LA? Are you fully involved in the Dharma? Like give us a sense of what it was like to be a 20 year old in the LA ashram. Well, I was in the A-lister group. I was in the D-list group. Um, I could have, you know, the the thing that I observed is that some people would run to Yogi Bhajan for advice if they, you know, broke a fingernail. There were some people who couldn't make any decisions on their own. And uh, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to solve some of my own issues by myself. This isn't, you know, an emergency if I have this Thing or that. I mean, I really was trying to live the teachings, meditate, work on self-reliance. Um, of course, I was sad when that happened. Um, I was confused. I was embarrassed. Um, it, originally, you know, when I got married to Monty, I mean, he seemed great. He seemed funny. And I naively thought all Sikh men were wonderful. You know, they all had long hair and beards and looked great. And <laughs> I thought they're all living a, a spiritual lifestyle. So how could we have any you know, marriage problems, if we're all living in our higher consciousness, it just didn't occur to me. I mean, meanwhile, my parents were miserable, but I just felt like I was living this utopian lifestyle. Um, I mean, the, the image was starting to get tarnished at that point. But I really thought that, you know, we were living a, a sustainable way that would help other people. Um, again, I was working for this chiropractor, and I felt like I was part of a team to help people, you know, uh, feel better and indirectly be influenced by the 3HO lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I was, I think, probably teaching some yoga classes myself at that time. And uh, so I was, I was upset for a while, but then, you know, I recovered. And in fact, I was engaged to get married again two years later. <laughs> who engaged um, you? Who was the second marriage range to? Um, semi, it, there were suggestions for us okay, to and know community <laughs> leader suggestions. Yeah. And some of, yeah, some other people, I think my, I'll call him my husband. Um, cause that was the, the one of duration, my second husband, but my husband, JP, um, uh, I think that he had been engaged and had gotten broken off. And I think they wanted to get him engaged again, fairly quickly. And, um, we met, he was living in Oregon at the time. He was in uh, college. He was studying to be an architect. And I um, was just doing my thing in LA, living in group, you know, uh, ashram kind of situations, not on my own. And so it was suggested that we get to know each other. And, you know, I 
made a pact with myself. I said, one, I'm going to be engaged to him for a while. It's not going to be, you know, turn around kind of thing. And it couldn't have anyway, because he was totally, you know, focused on, you know, completing his education before getting married. Um, And and we had sex before we got married. That was like check number one. I have to make sure that we are compatible in this category. I don't care if somebody thinks I'm a bad Sikh. Um, I don't know that anybody necessarily knew, but I would go visit him in Oregon or he'd come visit me and we, you know, we're having sex because look at what had just happened to me two years prior, you know, in so your I first felt, marriage. Yeah. yeah like I this is an area that I am now I'm choosing, right? So right. you're very sure. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, I and I had a, a few doubts, you know, about that marriage. Um, there were some fights, there were some things that gave me pause and made me think, uh-oh, what am I getting into? This may not be the right person for me. Um, but I already loved my in-laws his families to this day, um, you know, his mother, who was my son's grandmother, you know, I, I, I was already into, you know, my in-laws and my fam, my extended family, really good people. And that I think glossed over a number of things, but you know, it's interesting. I had, um, I had not had, a, had an appointment with Yogi Bhajan um, since the time when things were ending with Mani. But I wanted like a fresh start. I wanted to um, get some sage advice, some inspiration. Um, and I guess I was still processing, you know, my divorce from Mani. And so I went to Yogi Bhajan. And I, I don't even know if they asked me why I wanted to see him. But when I was there alone in his room with him, I was just a number of months before um, I, uh, I got married to JP. I said to him, I said, you know, I... I'm getting married again. Can you give me, you know, some advice? And he's, he looked at me, he was really looked pissed off. And he said, do you know why your marriage to Monty failed? And I didn't say anything. I didn't want to say, well, the obvious, you know, he goes, your marriage failed because you were a bitch. And When he said that, I didn't respond. I was complete poker face. But inside, I was thinking, I guess you're not psychic. I guess you're not all-knowing. You might not even be enlightened because I was not a bitch. In fact, Monty and I never even had an argument, I don't think. Um, I was just, I was blown away. I thought, you don't know me. Mm. Nope, nope, you don't know me. So I just kind of sat there quietly. And then I think I might have said, okay, thank you. (laughs) And I was starting to leave. Um, And he said, by the way, you should never weigh more than 90 pounds. And at the time, I weighed about 103. (laughs) I was enormous, you know. And I was thinking, okay. Um, And I didn't didn't set up an appointment with him ever again. Um, I had another meeting with him as my marriage to JP was ending. They dragged me there. But at that point, I thought, okay, I'm here for the people. I'm here for the Sangat. He, my image of him went way down after that point. And he had just mischaracterized me and the situation so completely. Um, and you had a strong enough sense of yourself to know that um, because you right. know how devoted you were, how practiced you were. You had created your own awareness of self. I find this so interesting. What year was this? 
Well, it was probably the beginning of 1986 because I got okay. married in May of 86 to JP. And um, yeah, I just, uh, I respected him at that point still to the extent that I really liked the yoga. I liked all of the nutritional advice, you know, celery calms the nerves, beets clean the liver. I was really into like the health aspect, uh, the quote technology of what he could share and pass along. That was all very interesting to me. Um, and it was also before I realized that a lot of his lectures were a bunch of gibberish. You know, he'd right. talk about the protons and the neutons and the nucleus. And, he, you know, one lecture he even said, you don't understand what I'm saying. This is for future generations, you know. And um, But one thing I wanted to bring up in talking to you is that I had started to make a, like a little list of the various things that started to chip away at mm. my faith in him um, and my respect for him because, uh, you know, other people have ha had horrendous experiences, you know, assault and, and thievery and all kinds of things that happened. And with me, it was more like a slow, you know, thing where at each juncture, whether it was with him or things I observed with his staff or members of the Sangha that I knew, I just, it just started making me less and less and less committed um, and just more resolved, like, what do I need to do to survive? And um, like, for instance, one time, you know, I wanted to be helpful. And one of the things that for people who were never in 3HO is that we would always be volunteering our services <laughs> for everything. A lot of favor. Favor is the name of the game. And this is still being propagated. So hear this at listeners, yeah. right? Sava is really just getting a lot of people giving their beautiful, emotional and free labor away. And we used to joke about it. We made a joke like, what are you doing on a Sunday? And like, well, I'm moving some pianos. You know, we were always kind of joking about this endless Sava. And one time I went to the back of the ashram and I'm supposed to be cleaning and I'm sitting there windexing a gold plated toothbrush, uh, you know, of Yogi Bhajan's. Everything was immaculate when I walked in. So I was like, what am I cleaning here? Because I expected, you know, dishes in the sink, something to be vacuumed. And I finally, I said, so Yogi Bhajan, oh, I call him whatever, seriously. So he's out of town, right? Yeah. And I said, and when was the last time this place was cleaned? yesterday. And so when I realized that I was cleaning on top of clean, I said, I'm never going to do this again. This is a waste of my time. And this is like game playing. Is there something I can do that's useful? I would have dug ditches, you know, something useful. Then I tried transcribing. Oy vey, you know, <laughs> I'm transcribing one of his lectures. And again, on the topic, he's for whatever reason, Bajan's talking about the the, the fags in West Hollywood. And I went back to the secretariat and I said, you know, there's some, it, there's some stuff in here. I will never sell this as a manual once you get it printed because he's saying derogatory things about gay people here. It's just, it's not right. And I suggest you delete it. I got complete blank stares. I, I don't remember whether it was Surya or Hari Joe, but it was just like, you don't, you're not editing him. You know? The, the, the grand pool audacity the audacity so i never did that again either i was just and i was trying to be helpful trying to be involved in the sangat um we had something i'm sure a lot of the different ashrams had it called the missile system where you get together in groups where you're going to all 
again, volunteer to make lunger or security and, you know, earthquake preparedness, what have you. And, and in LA, there were enough people that you could have this continuous reading of the scriptures every single week. And so you had to sign up for this. And one time I was in charge of signing people up for the econ pot to read in, you know, the wee hours. So I call uh, Dr. Saram's wife and I said, would you like to read in the econ pot? There's an opening at one or two in the morning. She started laughing. (laughs) You silly little peon, (laughs) you know, I don't read in the econ pot. And, you know, I mean, I'm having these experiences and it was before I really got into, you know, my mature self and I was still just, I was speechless most of the time, but it's in, inside I'm thinking, you know, you know, these people have, it's high school, basically being in 3HO was a popularity contest for them. And if they felt like they could go to La Scala and, and hang out at the jewelry store in Beverly Hills, that they were, you know, better than everybody else, you know, apparently that they, it was beneath them to do save us, some of the, you know, the A-listers. And of course, not everybody. I mean, there were wonderful people in 3HO. Um, There's still today some very nice people. I don't know what they're doing now in the last two years with, you know, all the revelations, but there were people in in the LA Sunget that I just, after a while, I thought these people are crazy. I mean, GRD, you know, misrepresenting themselves and selling fraudulent things. I mean, it was just after a while, it was too much stuff. And, and I think I made a couple of notes. There were other incidents where, again, oh, like one time Yogi Bhajan comes to Gudwara. He's dressed in a full length mink coat. And I'm like, aren't we supposed to be like vegetarians? Like, and he was so proud of himself with all his bling and stuff. And I was like, this, is he a holy man or is he just, you know, marketing something else? You know, it was very strange. Um, and again, mid eighties, at that time, there was like a craze in like aerobics. <laughs> Thank you, Jane Fonda. Mm-hmm. Cat here who's just wanting to be involved in the conversation. Um, so in a Gudwaro, one time Yogi Bhajan was, um, he just started, railing at the women who weren't wearing traditional uh, churidars, you know, the pants under their curtains. We were all into wearing leggings. They were in style. They were more flattering. They were more comfortable, frankly. And he was just saying, you shouldn't be wearing these leggings, you know, and I'm sitting there going, when is this going to stop? This is so superficial. What we wear and what we look like, that is like beside the point. I'm, you know, at that point, I'd been wearing white clothes for, you know, probably 10 years. And it was like, this hasn't make, made me evolve. It's just made me ostracized in the general, you know, population. Um, one time he, he was railing against, he had found out about a family that decided to go to the beach on a Sunday instead of Gurdwara. Oh, my God, you know, send the, the thought police out. And, and, and so it was all, it was those kinds of things that really bothered me. And when it, when it got down, you know, to my divorce from JP, um, I just, you know, at a certain point, I didn't want to be in the Sangat. I just saw a lot of really unhappy people. And I know I sound judgmental. But, you know, you don't, there- you just sound like you're noticing things. And what I also want to say about it is we were taught to think 
noticing the things around us was judgmental. And then we were taught to be judgmental to not notice the things. And so they were kind of this symbiotic way that shame was used to keep people thinking it was only their experience and their personal fault. Right. And, and since then, I, you know, I went on to read every self-help book imaginable in the 80s and, and 90s, but it was kind of like, you know, if you're around what you think are toxic people, you should remove yourself from those situations. If, if you're, you know, being abused by narcissists or whatever, you need to get out, you know. And so if you're judging them for what you think are, you know, these different personality disorders and flaws and what have you, you know, you have to come to those conclusions somehow. And if you don't feel good when you're around certain people, you, you know, and you know that there's no reckoning and no a, a way to change it, then you need to, you know, exit. Well, I want to ask real quick, because you're talking about all these different experiences that began to erode at your kind of deeper connection. And it also sounds like you were always one that practiced, like you had your morning sadhana, you had your daily discipline, yeah. you taught. And what... um became obvious is that not everybody did that in the community. They could identify themselves at whatever status they were at and right. not necessarily be the sadhana goer, not necessarily be the one doing seva and supporting the community upliftment. And so I know what you're talking about when these little experiences started to make you realize, oh, there's a hierarchy here. Um, what I'm curious about is at that time in your personal experience, um, this same time period around 86, um, Pamela Dyson left, Premka left, and Kate Felt left. And, and so there were things happening in the community that were stirring things up. Do you remember that and kind of like how the wave of people dealt with the exodus that was happening around that time? Yeah. And, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't try to find out more, seek, for, seek you know, the, the real story further out, but also to put it in context, there was no internet. A lot of people would disappear and you had no way of really finding them if they didn't want to be found to discuss these things. Um, and as I mentioned um, elsewhere, I think uh, online is that I began to see the cool people leave. Vikram Singh, Sat Peter Singh. I was like, oh, I'm going to miss these people. What is going on? And so with former Primka, I didn't know what was going on, but I was starting to feel that maybe he had had consensual, that Bajan had had consensual relations with some or one of his staff. And I wasn't going to sit in judgment of that, but I thought, okay, you know, I don't know whether there's, I don't know what's going on with them and the lawsuit. And at the time also, I was friends with Siri Bonnikar, who was really good friends with Kate Felt. And I just, I just kind of assumed that Siri Bonnie would have told me if she thought that those allegations were correct or not. But then I came to discover that she probably, you know, had some compromised things happen to her too, and maybe just couldn't discuss it. It's amazing how compartmentalized people can be. Um, uh, in fact, you had a recent interview with the. Uh, gentleman, I was listening to the podcast the other day, um, where he was talking about in his job, how he, you know, he studied how the CIA had the whole mind control programs and whatnot. And it's just very interesting how people can forget, subliminate things. Um, well, also not even be able to recognize that whole time periods were actually abuse, because when something goes on for so long, it actually gets normalized. 
And we don't understand that on the realm of, of severe levels of complex trauma. But I'm curious, who is, who is the Siri Bonnie? She was also a secretary? She was uh, around my age. And when I met her in LA, she was, she was living, I think, at one of the ashrams. I want to what was the name? Guru Arjandev, something. She had been taken under Yogi Bhajan's wing because what the story was, was that her mother had been taking yoga classes and kind of like said, here, you have her. And he like sort of informally adopted her, I think. I don't even know if the story was real or not. But so she was possibly being groomed to be on the staff. But then lo and behold, um, he married her off to a chiropractor. Um, and so she got married and, and I knew she was friends with former Karta Pork, but she never said a word about whether any of that stuff was true or not. So I had to assume it wasn't, I had to assume there's some kind of, you know, bitter grapes, there's financial incentive. But that was the narrative that went around in the community that this documentation went public. And so that became the narrative around, oh, it's just for money or it's uh, blah, blah, blah. And so that was swarming. That wasn't something you came up with, no? And we didn't have the particulars. It was only years later when a cult awareness website actually listed the legal documents and paperwork that people were actually able to see the actual claims and the descriptions of things. Prior to that, it was all just kind of vague, you know. Um, I have to just pause and say how disturbed I was um, to read that document and see that um, former Carter Perks, you know, she's the creator of the Oriental Beauty Secrets and she was the creator of of these these formulas and how that was a part of what she was standing up for was that these were her creations that were then um, being stolen, not even just the sexual... um, the violent abuse. Right. And with the businesses in general, uh, at that time, I had no idea that Bajan had his hands in everything. Like I used to think GRD was this ridiculous, fraudulent business. And I couldn't understand why the men who were involved were doing it, but I didn't think that Bajan was taking a piece of the action or even instructing them that there's quote, no karma over the phone and that you can lie over the phone. Um, and fraud and, people and, and, yeah. and fraud people out of hundreds and thousands of dollars. And all these other businesses, um, like I remember in a Gurdwara once when it had just come out that Guru Jot got arrested for you know his major drug dealing endeavors. And Bajan sat there going, I, I, I didn't know he was doing that. I, I just... I claim, you know, ignorance. And it was like, really? You know, and so um, so I just thought that a lot of the shenanigans that were going on with some of the people and some of the business that Bajan wasn't a part of it, that or that, you know, you can't control all your students. You can't necessarily take responsibility for everything that everybody's doing. Um, but in retrospect, of course, he was micromanaging so many people that it would be impossible not to know about all of these inner workings. And, um, you know, and there were always people who were put in positions of power and authority um, who had no training and learning on the job. And yeah, it just. It just but you didn't know that so then. You're saying no. that now looking at it. Yeah. 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 And so, so at the time, the time, though, so you you were you were close enough in to to the this real inner circle group of women that was in there. So 
and I want to really point out something you said. So you began to think, okay, there might have been be consensual sex going on, but you, it never dawned on you that there's no such thing in terms of the power dynamics of what was at play. Like, I feel like at 15, I became aware of that. Like, it was kind of like, everybody's got to know he's sleeping with, with his women, but I had no idea the level of grooming and predation and sadism and that level of things until that 2020 time when, when finally the silence got broken. And so I'm hearing you say the same thing. And I'm saying this out loud because that's what it means to kind of weave a mythological tale within an environmental or institutional community as you've already built a foundation around slander. And if anything's ever told against the teacher, and then when these seemingly isolated incidences of abuse or people leaving leave, it's justified back through these same mythological tales around, oh, it's just for the money or they dropped off the path. I mean, I don't know what some of the other things you thought of, but I hear you saying, well, if if Siri Bonnie didn't bring it up, then everything must have been okay, rather than realizing, well, maybe there's really heavy abuse going on and, and we have no idea. Yeah. And I think, and, and to that extent, I think Siri Bonnie and former Carter Perk, they were friends and I, and I would have, I would have assumed that they would confide in each other. Although there was an alarming amount of people who were, um, well, sometimes I call them fair weather friends, you know, there was like a fake social structure in 3HO where your activities were centered around solstice, tantric, gudwaras, and as opposed to just kicking back and shooting the breeze or, you know, going off, you know, to a movie or whatever. And so I don't think people were as emotionally close to each other, at least I wasn't, as I, you know, I could have been with other people. In fact, when I left 3HO, nobody called me and said, how are you? Like, what has happened? I moved three miles away. I might as well have moved out of the country, you know? And so there was no follow-up. People were afraid because if you're, you know, X3HO adjacent, then you're also, you know, going down the path of, of you know, uh, it's just funny. I ran into a woman who used to be a Hare Krishna. And she said that when, somebody leaves the Krishna organization that the people who stay refer to them as karmis, like people who are now subject to the wheel of karma and the whole business of, you know, how you're going to be a prostitute and go to hell. It's the same fire and brimstone of the evangelical church. It's just in an Eastern accent. It's the same thing. And um, so, yeah, so I wasn't that introspective and I was at that time probably just focused on surviving and being in my marriage and figuring out my game plan and what I was going to do. Um, and, and in fact, I naively thought that if I had a child that that might make my second marriage better and make us closer because I did find out that we had nothing in common and, and saw things very differently again, juxtaposed against the idea that you could marry just about anybody in 3HO because we all supposedly had something so profound in common. <laughs> um, but no, mm -hmm. there's still some other, you know, things that you would look for in a good relationship. So um, yeah, so those were, you know, those were the times. Um, and uh, just trying to think there were, yeah, there were just so many slights where I, I can even remember having one passing thought where I thought, 
Yogi Bhajan, you know, he's got all these creeps around him, fawning over him, but they have a lot of money. And so if they give money to the Dharma, great, we all benefit, you know, let him take care of the basket cases, you know, I'm just doing my own thing. And, and at that point, I still thought Kundalini Yoga was a legitimate, you know, lineage and what have you. I still buying part of the story, but I do claim that I never bought, you know, never, um, drank the Kool-Aid 100% because if he had ever said to me, just go out and, you know, jump off a bridge, I would have said, excuse me, sir. (laughs) Adios. I wouldn't have said, okay, you know, watch me do it, you know, but some people really kind of lost themselves completely. Um, um, Yeah. There were people drinking uh, urine because he told them to drink their own urine, you know, (laughs) it's just like whatever goes. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And I was going to write a book years right after I left 3HO, I put it on the back burner, but I was going to write a book on spiritual hypocrisy because that's what I seem to have been inundated with over and over again of people doing and saying things that are, you know, distinct from the, you know, the tenets of being a yogi or of being a Sikh. And and not just with 3HO, I have a family member who's been um, uh, uh, Jewish, she's been a Buddhist, she's been a Sufi, she's everything, but she's always been really mean to me, really mean and really judgmental. And, and so there were things, you know, that I, I really felt like this is also hypocritical. And it, is that the lesson? Slide and all of the the formal attributes of organized religion and all the trappings. Um, there's uh, the, the comedian George Carlin has a very funny stand-up routine where he says, beware of people who wear hats. <laughs> so, you know, something happens. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What I'm, what I'm really having illuminated here is how, you started so young, you started at this time where um, you really illuminated kind of the, the awe of the teacher, the handsome warrior teacher and kind of how that persona passed and how is this young student that brought you in. And it, it really is a special quality of that, that young adult that Nanak Dev really represented and that your age was going into this, this 20, 22, 24 year old group that hung out in LA around that time that GRD was happening. And, you know, my brothers both have interesting stories that lend themselves to, to that 1987 time. Um, and I'm pointing it out because you're, you're speaking to ways in which you were becoming aware, but while simultaneously justifying and focusing on your survival. And I say justifying because that's what survival makes us do, right? We just, we notice it and then we're like, well, let me just focus on what I can control. And so a lot of the ways that many people stayed in from the 80s into the 90s and beyond and even a lot of new people came in in the early 90s that are listening to this podcast that are this young adult age is because of this special atmosphere you're speaking to. There was this interesting camaraderie, kind of cool hangout zone that kind of slowly morphed into more and more weirdness and factions 
So the weirder and weirder people and the cooler kind of like uh, stragglers a bit, but we all still considered ourselves in the community in a way because it was each other that we loved. So the less and less of um, relating to the institution and more and more to the people. And then I hear even that started eroding for you. And the more and more that started eroding, the cool people were leaving, meaning the musicians, just anybody you had ever identified with are slowly outskirting even further. Um, and there wasn't the social networks online that people stayed connected. You either had relationships with people or you didn't that went beyond the Dharma or they didn't. And it sounds like you just started creating a new life and you were dealing with your marriage too. So like your focal point started being around your, your child and your marriage. A few, just a few years before I finally called it quits, Akash and I decided that we wanted to have a Halloween party, um, costumes mandatory. (laughs) And um, in LA. Okay. Yeah. In LA. And it was, it was a great, party. In fact, it was so popular. I laughed so hard that night watching people walk up my driveway in their various costumes that I couldn't speak the next day. I had laryngitis from laughing and screaming so much. And it was so popular that people demanded that we have another Halloween party the following year. But what was so interesting is that we knew that we were crossing a fine line. You know, what would Yogi Bhajan say if he got wind of the fact that you know, we're having this Halloween party that's costumes. And this is by this time, everybody was uptight and all right. It wasn't the the groovy hippie days of, uh, you know, uh, the Melrose uh, yoga class that Bajan used to talk about. It was now people who were formal Sikhs and for a long time. And I had not one, but two women call me and they said, I, I really would love to come to this party, but I just don't feel comfortable not wearing Bana. And I, I, they didn't know it. I knew that both of them had had affairs with married men. And I was thinking, <laughs> again, spiritual hypocrisy or priority as I think, this is interesting. She's embarrassed to have someone see her hair in a group of people that are part of her spiritual family, it's okay having a so anyway it was really amazing because a large portion of the sangha did come um in fact there was one man he really surprised me because he is to this day a complete fanatic and he came his arms strapped to a piece of wood like he was on a cross and he had like this light thing going on over his head, like a halo, but it was hysterical. It was very funny. He, he decided if I'm going to wear my hair down, I'm going to be, you know, uh, I'm going to be an enlightened being. And people, there was like a young guy there. I don't know who it was, but you know, the young guys with blonde hair hardly ever had any facial hair either. There was a young guy in, probably in his early twenties, um, somebody's son, I don't know who, but he wore a black dress, makeup, high heels. I mean, he had the whole thing, cross-dressing thing totally down. And, and people came as pirates and Merlin the magician. And people were using their long hair and beards as part of their costumes. But people also were renting costumes. And everybody was in the spirit of it. It was very, very fun. And I, I had people come and say to me, this is the most fun I have ever had in 3HO, you know, and, and it made me feel good that I had hosted, you know, or co-hosted a party that was so 
fun. But I also thought, isn't this pathetic? (laughs) You know, it was such a release for people. That's what they were saying. I mean, it's just like a chance to not be, you know, so-and-so sing Mukia Mukia. And, and, and it was really fun. I mean, we even had like a costume contest. Somebody who was dressed up as Glenda, the good witch of the East and this big poofy pink gown one. And, and so, you know, those were the kinds of things where, again, I, I felt in duality, I felt sort of a love for the Sangha and the community. And then, you know, we, Akash and I were like, hmm, I wonder if we're going to get a call. I wonder if we're going to get raked over the coals. What year was this? What year? It was 1990. Okay. And so we didn't. This is prime time LA. Prime time LA time. Keep going. He didn't say a word. I think maybe at class a day or two later, he said something like, so you had a party. And it occurred to me later, there was no way that he could lambast almost the entire Sangat for doing that because he would have he would have had to deal with the fallout of a lot of you know a majority of the people being upset as opposed to the way he used to just single out people and shame you know one person at a time but this was you know massive group participation and then you know he loved akasha she was he did and she was like money very good pr for 3ho and so he wasn't going to rock that boat and so it was kind of interesting Bajan didn't oh. he didn't scold us we're having this event where people were running around, you know, without their turbans on. Um, but yeah, so that was just a few years before I left. But again, in survival mode, um, when I was finally getting ready to divorce my second husband, I had a three-year-old, four-year-old. I had no job skills. Um, what am I going to do now? You know, it was it was rough. But I had faith. I, I actually had this thought: if God can rotate the world around every 24 hours, I'm going to be okay, you know, and I, and I was, but um, we had a meeting with Yogi Bhajan um, just before I left. I don't know if it was to save my marriage or what, but um, I guess he had found out that I wasn't wearing a turban all the time, which is so ridiculous because when, when was I not wearing a turban? I was not wearing a turban when I was rollerblading on the Venice beach. You know, I mean, Harry Perry wore a turban when he was rollerblading, <laughs> on, but nobody else with any common sense exercises with six you know, yards of fabric on their head. It was, it was purely a practical matter, not rebellion, you know, whatever, but it did ruffle the feathers of some people. So so we have this meeting and I'm pr- totally prepared for him to tell me I'm a bitch again. You know, I was whatever, you know, I don't care. I'm on my way out. So he's, he looks at me. Then he looks at my husband and he says, she's a lovely lady. What's your problem? <laughs> and I thought, oh, he's going to try to butter me up now, you know, try the reverse technique. And um, he says, you know, BBG didn't wear a turban for a long time. So again, he's trying to basically say, it's okay, it's okay, you'll come back to your senses at some point, you know. Um, And so then as we were leaving, he said something that I thought was a thinly veiled anti-Semitic statement, because he said, you get your marriage together, you write a book about it, you people know how to make money. So he was referring Mm, to me, my ex, who were, you know culturally, genetically Jewish. And as I'm walking out the door, I'm thinking, 
there he goes again. <laughs> it's just like, it's all about money. It's about identifying people, you know, in ridiculous ways. So, so I was gone, you know, and that mm. was it. But at that moment, I really felt like, okay, he has consensual sex with his secretaries and there's people who are really fucked up. And, and I had that thought, you know, I was about 36 and I did have this thought of, well, I might get married again one day. I might have another child. There's no one, there's no Sikh that I can even, single Sikh man I can even think of who I'm remotely interested in. And I thought, okay, what are the chances of me walking around LA dressed as 15th century India that I am going to attract a normal guy, (laughs) you know, looking like a nun? Zero. So off with the turban, you know. Um, Yeah, I just, I had to drop the whole thing. Um, I was actually at um, a client's home a number of years after that. And the husband was asking me about my name. And I said, well, it's a Punjabi name. And it's actually, it's a spiritual name. I used to have a teacher who liked to rename everybody. And he goes, who was that teacher? I said, Yogi Bhajan. And he stood up as if somebody had like put a fire under his seat. And he goes, that fucking asshole. <laughs> I was like, I said, okay, I don't necessarily disagree, but you know. Whoa. And he said, talk to my wife. And, you know, she was trying to maintain confidentiality, but, but he said, she's got clients. She's got women that have go to her and talk to her. They've been traumatized by that man. Secretaries of his. And I didn't ask anymore. I was like, I know, I know it's bad. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> you know. But in terms of what other people think of three HOers, I know there's some people who think, oh, people will be so disappointed in me if I leave the group and take off my turban. <laughs> when I taught my last yoga class, well, not my last one, but I had students, they were regulars, and I stopped wearing a turban. So I came to my class. I said, I still love yoga. I'm still going to teach this class, but I've got a problem with the administration. So I'm not going to wear a turban anymore. And I wondered whether I would lose some students. And um, there was a moment of silence, and then the whole class started clapping. <laughs> I said, I expect that response. And a couple of ladies, they went to my class and they went to Gurmukh's class on a regular basis. And real sweet ladies. And they said, we wouldn't want to wear a turban either. <laughs> and so there was total acceptance, total understanding. You hardly even had to explain anything. Because from the outside to the end, people would look at it and they would go, no, this is kind of extreme. And um, yeah, so people, people have a different opinion than what some people in 3HO think other people think of them. So uh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and then over the years, over the decades, I would then start to run into people here and there who would tell me more of their full story, you know, Suzanne telling me about how she was assaulted. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, this is even more than what I knew about when I was leaving, more and worse, way worse. And so uh, it took a while for me to really, really register what was going on. Yeah. And um, had you, 
Did you maintain connections with like your earliest teacher with, with Nanak Dev or as you moved more and more and you would just notice that disconnect, he started doing his other thing. And, and did you hear about people's stories that had left over time or was it just 2020 that you really got exposure to different people's experiences? I, you know, I heard of a few stories. I kind of heard of why Vikram Singh uh, had left and, and um, trying to think of some of the other, you know, stories here and there. I mean, I heard about former Baba Singh's daughter um, had dinner with her uh, with a group of people where she talked about, you know, how she'd been manhandled. And, and so just here and there, I wasn't even particularly looking for that kind of thing. Um, in fact, I ran into a guy, I can't remember his name, but his wife was like a psychic channeler. I think her name might've even been Kartar or Karta, something like that. And there was a time when Yogi Bhajan was sending everybody over to her for psychic readings. And it was like a thing. Um, and I ran into him years later. And so they had both left 3HO, but he, he told me something about how she, the psychic woman, had confronted Bhajan about all his misdeeds. And he wanted her to somehow do some magic and make all of it go away. And she was like, no, you have to admit to all of these things and atone. And he was like, no, 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 I'm not going to. But she, she knew, psychically, she knew all the stuff that he had done. And so I would run into people like that. One time I ran into a guy at my gym, a black man, I think, I can't remember his exact name, but he had been part of Krishna's ashram in the Broadway ashram in, in South LA. And I said, so why did you leave? And he's like, well, you know, honestly, people were kind of racist and Yogi Bhajan was kind of racist. And I was, again, I, I was like, really that too? <laughs> so I didn't really notice, but of course, why would I notice? It's not, you know, I wasn't vulnerable in that way. Or maybe I was never privy to his own conversations or meetings with Bhajan where maybe he was put down in a, a racial context. And so little things, little things. And then years ago, you know, I started um, seeing stuff by Gersant Singh on, on the internet where he was saying, people, people wake up and, and Trilochin's book. I mean, it's been out there. Um, uh, so it's taken a while, but I feel sorry for a lot of the people who have been in 3HO for 50 years. And now they're finally having to reckon with something that can't be put back in the box. It went viral and international. I didn't know Guru Dev Singh in Mexico was a, a, um, a predator, predator either, you know? So, yeah. So the way uh, that it's replicated, that the predator formula has replicated itself in different teacher lineages. And what I'm finding so fascinating about realizing that, and you're a real wealth of, of dot connection, whether you realize it or not, it's because at certain time periods, certain things were happening and you just happened to be in a place where these things were happening around you, but you weren't necessarily any of like the head honchos that were running these things. And not directly impacted, but still witnessing things. And, and yeah, it, it broke me down eventually, you know, it's like, uh, this is all very compromised. This isn't spiritual. What am I getting out of this? You know, well, um, and I think a lot of people, um, and I know it's a part of the healing process, but we can hold ourselves in this in-between space of making no decision, but still staying put. And it's like, it's that there's a place of cognitive dissonance where we're no noticing. And I feel like a lot of people from the um, 
turn of the 90s, the early 90s, stayed for quite a more few years, but did what you did, kind of like recognize that some people gave away their power more than others. Some people went and asked him everything. Kind of there became more categories to compartmentalize. Well, I'm just going to focus on my lane. And another Mm -hmm. decade can go by just focusing on your lane where lots of incongruencies that aren't a part of the teachings have always been there. And I think that's one of the things this conversation illuminates a lot is the information has always been there. It's just whether or not we're paying attention. And that's what undue cult influence does is it over time erodes our capacity to see what's in plain sight, even though our body's feeling it and we are noticing it the whole time. Right. And, and also a, a point I wanted to bring up um, for people and everything that they've been through is that once you've been in a cult, um, you might have cult radar on some levels. I did, you know, when I encountered a few other new agey groups, you know, that came my way afterwards. But there's also a part of your personality that you may be vulnerable to that again and not even realize it. Um, and even in politics, you know, to me, politics and religion are very similar. You've got a leader, they know how to, you know, they're charismatic, they uh, tell you how to live your life. And then when they fall, you're devastated. And so I see people who, nowadays, whether they've been in 3HO or not, where they have extreme political views, and they don't realize that's cult mentality too. And so we are subject to that. You have to be kind of on guard a little bit. Um, you know, I became a feng shui consultant. And when, uh, when I first started studying it, there was a little wave of teachers from China and Hong Kong who came to the West. And some of them were great, remarkable people. And some of them were shysters just trying to make money off of Westerners, you know, and, and I thought, oh, they, you know, it's going to be another cult again. What am I doing here? You know, so it's just, you have to, you know, find out what's real and what's not. But that was like a continuation of, okay, now, how am I going to, you know, decipher these things as I move on in life? Because I had been damaged and I didn't get formal therapy, probably should have, you know, but I just sort of made my way through, you know, the rest of my life. And then later on, um, I was, you know, because of my son, I was forced to study, you know, on my own psychology and mental illness and whatnot. And that then turned things around also for me where I was able to see 3HO, through the lens of mental illness, there were people in, you know, my local Sangat who were classically mentally ill, who were not getting the help they needed. These were people who should have been on medic, medic, medication and therapy and whatnot. And they were just being told, you know, eat beets or do this meditation for 40 days. They were, they were not being taken care of. And then there, I found out that there were some, you know, pretty serious psychotic breakdowns with people, all in that denial of that 3HO and, you know, chanting can handle everything. No, it can't, you know. And so I think a lot of people learned that eventually. But um, seeing, you know, some of people's, like, I do see Yogi Bhajan as being a mentally ill person. I do. Now, so on that level, I have compassion. But it's still no excuse. You know, it's just like when there's a mass shooter, you know, they're mentally no excuse for terrorizing. Right. Right. No excuse for abusing and hurting people. But yeah, you see kind of where it comes from and um, extreme and how it was so ingrained to not address it, you know, because if we actually were getting outside opinions, what's going on, a whole new framework would have come into 
um, our perceptive view, right. Or our parents' perceptive view. And um, so this is a really important point. If we understood the names of narcissism and gaslighting at that time, our language that was disguised as holy language that was very public and very normal in our community was just common. Gaslighting Mm -hmm. was just a common experience where everything was put back onto you Mm -hmm. as it was your fault. There was something wrong with you. This is actually built in to the teachings in a way, because it's, it became so a part of, what we know of as our culture. And well, even before I had a child, I used to say, I'm never going to send my kids to India. I thought it was absurd. And I was made fun of You were like, you're neurotic, you're negative. <laughs> it's like, sorry, five years old is too young to ship your kid off to a third world country. No, no, it's not going to happen. You know? So yeah, I tried, you know, I tried to hold my own as much as I could. Um, and then later I discovered that Legally, as a divorced person, I had a lot more power to make sure certain things didn't happen. So, you know, yeah. Meaning, as a mother, you you had legal you had legal activism to not let your son go overseas. Versus, if you would have been married at that time, you wouldn't have had the rights because it was um, wrapped up in your marriage. I could have been bullied into it. Whereas, as a divorced person, I had legal fifty fifty physical custody as well as. uh, legal, physical custody and legal custody. So that was my protection, you know, mm. and I had my, I, I also, at the time my in-laws were alive and they would have had none of that. They, my ex would have been in big trouble with his own parents if he had tried to do that, you know, so ah, you live and you learn and hopefully you learn mm. and um, move on. And, um, you know, and I've been on the forum where people are just really hashing it out. They, they want to do the yoga, but they don't want to associate. And, you know, I, I was really into yoga. I could do stretch pose for nine minutes with breath of fire. I mean, I was really into yoga and I nine minutes in, <laughs> when I was young, when I was 16, but I, I don't miss it. I don't miss it. You know, it's just like, I couldn't separate the two. So instead of, you know, keeping some of the stuff, I just dropped it all and I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> Well, what I want to point out is that everybody has to really kind of find that answer within their own selves. So I really appreciate you speaking to that. And I also want to share that so much of the language you've used to stay that next 10 years that started kind of how you were collecting a part of yourself while still staying in this community that you had been in for a very long time. So to make a choice like, huh, he doesn't know me. There was a part of you that you collected that was no longer like power to YB. And that type of language, the way we justify, well, this is good, but this isn't good. This is good, but this isn't good. That was used then and it's still used now. And that's what I want to point out that's fascinating me so much is that within the teacher training with new students coming in, the language I'm hearing from this new 16-year-old is exactly sounding like you at 16. Mm -hmm. It's that mystical, but we're talking about five decades apart. And that's astounding to me because that means there's a mythological tale that brings people in. And that's essentially a part of a cult formula. There's love bombing, and then it moves to a different thing, and then it moves to a different thing. And so it's a really important part of learning and reclaiming our own critical thinking um, to learn about 
how systems of cult indoctrination work, because it's not this or that it's on this spectrum of influence. And because we all come from our own childhood mixed bag of trauma tricks, we end up in communities that feel really good. They are uplifting. They are supportive. There are all these ways that it helps. And there's also undercurrents of undue influence the whole time. And I found Stephen Hassan's work, um, the cult expert, um, and his books on combating, combating mind control have been so helpful to kind of see the picture of ourselves through a context outside of what we've been trained that context to be. Yeah, there was just left and right, you know, uh, we used to joke about how if we did everything we were supposed to do yoga wise that Bajan said we should do every day, we would have to have a 72 hour day because to fit it all in. (laughs) And from the moment you got up in the morning till you went to sleep, there was stuff where I don't know how to describe it, but for instance, there the level of mind control or manipulation was even such that they would put something out right in front of you and not hide it. And therefore you really wouldn't suspect it. Like it was, the the secretaries used to talk all the time about being on duty, you know, and we knew that they slept in the same room with him, but you know, like, so because they would just talk about it, you didn't, you didn't expect the other stuff going on. Um, There was so much of that. Um, uh, And Bajan didn't deny being, you know, the boss, you know, as people used to call him, he would just say, oh, I'm not one of these timid guys in a loincloth. I'm, you know, I'm speaking the language and acting the way you stupid Westerners, you know, can relate to me, you know. So there was an excuse and gaslighting, like you said, for everything. Um, And it's built um, into the teacher training system that, you know, they have this master's touch book and it was like literally the myth, the mythological story of the told by the first gen teachers would go into this kind of like this mystical voice. And they would be thinking, you know, speaking about how, yes, his tough love and just how weird it was that this was being propagated through the teacher training. Cause I remember that being the worst aspect of our growing up. Why would that possibly be being taught in the training? And so I guess I'm saying that out loud to say what you're saying about not being able to separate the two. I find the validity of that has, has so much to do with the patterning, the energetic patterning that's infused into how the teachings have been taught to be delivered and to be revered and to not be questioned. Just these types of things are a part of how institutions of narcissism and brainwashing and controlling thinking happen, which is why we see young people getting undue influence in the Kundalini yoga system even today. Well, I've watched some YouTube videos of some of these 3HO people, their yoga classes, and um, a couple of them were people who I remember as being very nice people and with seeing them actually teach yoga, they're mimicking a lot of the Yogi Bhajan shit, you know, and, and outing people in the middle of the class and thinking that's hilarious. And I'm like, what happened to this person? You know, I wouldn't have suspected if they had that done to them, why would they do that to somebody else? You know, because but, it get, becomes a part of the system, right? It's a part right. of the pattern. And then that pattern becomes normalized and it becomes a part of creating tough warriors, And this is what 
indoctrination does like really good leadership within cult systems create these kind of special identities. And so it starts with this kind of like special, like your early years, you sharing that helps to paint the picture of kind of the love bombing that happens and to feel that you're a part of a community in a world that's so fragmented, it becomes a special place. And right. And we're talking truth. And I'm seeing like these young yoga students starting to be propagators of Kundalini yoga, and they don't know a thing, just like you at 16, writing time magazine saying this practice has changed my life, blah, blah, blah. You don't know the truth, you know, but I was willing to be a spokesperson. Yes, but it's built into the teachings to become a spokesperson, to become advocacy of these special knowledge. And so even just speaking to it the way you are, I've just found has been really helpful because it really gives a snapshot in time that something that was happening 30 years ago as the grooming into the, the Dharma is still very much at play for those that are propagating um, the the practice still. For those of us that are out, we're not paying attention to any of that stuff anyway, but I'm finding so fascinating that it's the same story. Yeah. Well, I I recently talked to somebody who had been in 3HO for 50 years, 5-0, and got in when she was 21. She's in her early 70s. And she did it. You know, I mean, you hear about these bedside confessions. I mean, some people can finally rest in peace because they know the truth, but it is hard. I have a lot of compassion for people who wrapped around their marriages, their, their careers, their whole social life. And they might, might even at this point have intermarriage relationships where their kids married somebody else's kids. And it's very tough. I have a lot of compassion for the people who would kind of like to leave 3HO, but they feel trapped even now. And she enlightened me that there is quite a bit of infighting going on, shocking to the extent that they can't just get along um, with some people who say, okay, I'm going to practice this part, but not that part. Just so unaccepting. And I thought that was the overriding thing is that you got accolades in 3HO for being tough, for being sleep deprived but not having your heart opened, you know, it was like, it wasn't a heart centered path really. Um, so I, and it could have been may the long time sunshine upon, you know, it could have been very sweet, but not with Bajan at the helm. I mean, he just, he turned it in. He was like the Hugh Hefner, you know, of, of uh, Eastern with, you know, with sadism, right. With sadism. And, and, uh, and, and I, you know, I just feel like it's, it's very, it's yeah. next level abuse, you know, yeah. next level abuse, what happened to the, to the young women, much less just the ripple effect and how um, the whole community just let ourselves see, see beyond it in the name of um, story mythology of the Saturn teacher and all the other ways that it was about some people not, you know, some people giving their power away and other people like all the ways that factions get formed for us to justify abuses that are happening all around us for us yeah. not to notice the racism. It's because we're in white bodies and we're not meant to notice it. Right. So we're not noticing things in plain sight all the time. Right. And a different era, you know, some of the people who had the worst things happen to them are in their seventies, maybe eighties. They came from a different background. And so it was interesting to see how, when, Pamela's book came out that a lot of younger women and, you know, the the me too kind of mentality, they were immediately like, Oh no, 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 no. This is not acceptable. So they took the reins to really help expose it. Whereas other people, 
and again, whatever culture or time frame they came from, not that it was ever normal, but they just, they couldn't speak out. They were, you know, they just had no, no format to do that even until recently. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, right. so the internet changed. And that. the culture of shaming that was so early indoctrinated within 3HO that anybody who did speak out, there was public shaming attached to that. So that was happening on every level from, you know, concentric circles of new forms of power of yoga student, of yoga teachers down to their students. Like what you're talking about, the body shaming, like these things were built in and propagated early about being thin, about looking a certain way, about what devotion looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. what the dedicated path means, just all that stuff. And we're all busy trying to, to do that as opposed to seeing what's, what's happening. Yeah. But I did, I still find it, you know, there's people who talk about their guru or their teacher and how, when they're in their presence, they feel so much love and joy. And I just remember with Bajan, people were like rats ready to just scatter. You know, it's like <laughs> if he called you up and said, be over at my place in five minutes, it was like, Wah! people were in terror. And he was, you know, like the man behind the mm-hmm. curtain. It was like, it wasn't like you, you've, I mean, I didn't feel all that good around him because I didn't know if I was going to get picked on or yelled at. It wasn't a loving Mahatma Gandhi, you know, it wasn't a Buddhist kind of even love. It was, it was just, um, it, it wasn't good for me. That's why I did leave. It took a while, but you know. And that's common. Like that. I remember that too. If you got a call from him, it was dread. People were like, Oh shoot. Like their lives literally could be destroyed overnight. And this becomes so common that once again, it was just to kind of a normalize like, Oh no, what's going to happen to them. Right. Are they going to get married off? Is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And yeah, he died what in 2004 or five. So it's been well over a decade of of the people in 3HO who haven't been yelled at by him. Has somebody else taken over? Have they forgotten, you know, that he was the way he was? He was like a crazy guy. I mean, what I think, no, what I've seen is that those personas got passed on to the next line of teachers. And then that same story is getting propagated through to the next teacher. So even though YB still holds the, you know, all of the stories kept going, like he's connecting through the subtle body, they kept propagating white tantric yoga, but the new demagogues kind of held the reins, but that same propagation, if you hear some of the earlier podcasts, it was fascinating to hear these young, like a 16 year old that started in Mexico. And then she was in from the early nineties, all the way to the mid two thousands. So like to hear how that same mythology ends up getting taught even beyond his him how it stayed being being delivered so in other words when he did his whole poke provoke confront elevate shtick that's part of the oh it's a teacher tenant. training it's, it's like a, a tenant of it teach. it's a major yeah. tenant same thing with choosing a name same thing with lots of things around becoming a Sikh and it's all fascinating because it's it's quite literally a formula, but how many of us that left are going in to take teacher training? Of course we're not. So we're watching these newbies come in and go through literally the same formation. I'm going to have someone on the podcast soon who's this young woman who literally just like right into Siki. And and, and before you knew it, she she, she was, yeah, the, the story's coming, but I'm just fascinated. So it really is more brilliant than I think, you know, to, to tell these, these, again, the early tales because the tales are on repeat. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, you know, years ago, I had read some article about how all organized religions started as cults and some survive and some don't. And the article, I don't know if they cited Scientology or a few different groups that have dwindled over the years, but they said that there has to be a certain level of continual recruitment and expansion in order for the cult to survive. And I always knew that 3HO was a little group and I thought, eh, it's not going to survive beyond, you know, this generation or this century, because I knew more, more second generation kids who were not interested in being Sikhs than the ones who were. And then I figured the attrition rate's just going to continue and it'll peter out. I figured um, the same thing until yeah. I saw the, the, the massive growth of KY by the time it's, you know, mid two thousands. Yeah. So I, again, I don't know if just Kundalini yoga will survive as it is, but, you know, I can remember being at ladies camp where we were doing basically just jumping jacks to the tune of some English mantra. And I was thinking, all right, I guess he's run out of Kriyas to teach because this is clearly not <laughs> Kundalini yoga, you know, <laughs> God and me, me and God are one, you know, so it was like, Again, making stuff wants, up. <laughs> if somebody generally wants to study, you know, traditional yoga, they can look into the Hatha yoga and the Raja yoga techniques and see where the Kundalini concept comes from. But he made up stuff, you know, and I don't yeah. know. I don't know it's, if it's balanced or not, honestly. Yeah, and there's just there's so much there's so much um, predatory stuff all infused. It's, it's quite a complex untangle. So again, that's up to every one of us on our own, but um, the, the, hearing the stories really helps um, break the, the mythological coma that we can end in when we end up in the, the brainwashing machine of the, of the Kundalini yoga to Sikhi marketing machine that is a well-oiled 3HO Kundalini yoga operating yeah. system. And, you know, someone, you don't want to deny somebody their, their experiences and whatnot, but there are some things that are clearly very, very superficial, like only wearing white clothes or having to cover your hair or never cutting your hair. Um, I remember my son, he was only about eight or so, and I happened to be pulling out of the driveway. Uh, I was dropping him off to be with his dad. And already I could hear an argument ensuing in the house. And it was something about my son, you know, wanting to cut his hair and um, his father telling him that if he has long hair, he'll be strong like Samson. And even then my son was like, wait a second, Arnold Schwarzenegger is Mr. Universe. He's the strongest man in the world and he's got short hair. And I was thinking, my kid is really, he's thinking about, he's thinking about stuff more than I thought about stuff when I was 25. You know, he's, He's saying this doesn't line up, you know, and so that's what people need to do more of. You really have to, you know, ask yourself, does this make sense? Is it superficial? Um, you know, does it matter what you eat? Are you superior to somebody just because, you know, this or that? It's just um, those are the trappings, though. And in fact, in the military, you change your name, you get a haircut, you change the clothes you're wearing. Those are the tactical ways to change somebody. Sleep deprivation. Those are all classic, you know military mind control things you're all one you're all the same march 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 you know and when you look back at it you go oh that was so silly that we did that <laughs> it was all just so right in line um yeah. i find really looking at yeah uh studies on high demand groups or cults and and again Stephen hassan's work on um 
call it mind control. It's so helpful, ladies and gentlemen, like it just gives you this formula to look at your life in a new lens and suddenly realize it, it, it's not as personal as we've ever been taught and, and made it to be. And there is life afterward. And there is a, a way to um, reclaim and collect more and more of ourselves and stop putting it into the bucket as um, humorous and better good than not, because really we're talking about very, very serious institutional abuse, very, very serious built-in um, abuse mechanisms um, that through our collective silence continue to grow. Just the other night, I've been following loosely this series on YouTube of a woman, she's a psychologist, her name is Dr. Ramani, and she's doing a whole series on narcissism and all the different situations and flavors and different types of relationships, like what it's like if you're with a narcissist, if they make more money than you, what it's like if they make less than you and how, you know, how they manifest their personality disorder. And just the other night, she had one on the pseudo spiritual narcissist and bing, bing, bing. It was like, I, I was listening going, God, you know, that is, that was Bajan for sure. And a lot of people in the group who are following in his pattern, they're looking at those techniques and they're, they're making themselves narcissists if they weren't before they're completely you know throwing away their empathy for other people and um and this is really really common and if you get ensnared by a narcissist it does take a while to figure out what's going on they're masters of manipulation and in fact i it even occurred to me with bajan that he knew exactly or almost exactly who to pick to abuse in his staff because he knew who was going to keep quiet. He psychologically, you know, could figure out who, who was going to, you know, keep the, keep the gam, the scam going. So, I mean, he, had, he didn't have a hundred percent track record, but he was pretty close. And so that's, that was being done to people left and right. And, yeah. The, the depth of psychological and spiritual manipulation that happens on, on this narcissistic communication level um, say that doctor's name again so that listeners can hear how to find that. Uh, it's Ramani, R-A-M-I-N-I. Ramani. And just yeah. look up Dr. Ramani uh, narcissism work or something like that and see if you could locate this work. Can't encourage it enough. The more we can start learning the language and the, the way we identify narcissism and gaslighting and um it, when something's happened to you for so long, you don't know it's not what you've ever been taught it was. And so that's a part of the challenge of breaking out of conditioning is um, if you you can even be in an abusive personal relationship with a narcissist and not know that what you've experienced is abuse because it's gotten so normalized until you get out and you start getting perspective. So thank you for sharing that. It's a, it's a huge piece of being able to recognize kind of real, real places of learning that we can grow and expand versus the trappings where real learning actually is narcissistic manipulation. And it's, it, it gives us signs that we're getting um, pulled into a whole nother cult. And they're everywhere these days, just yeah. like you brought up the politic, the politi political level, on the spiritual level, all these realms in which we can get caught up in um, Fake news. Well, fake <laughs> news. Was the original promulgator of fake news. <laughs> yeah. And the truth is he wasn't, you know, colonialism and imperialism was right. Um, but he's just taking that same master formula and, and repropagated it in a spiritual context. 
Um, and 50 years later, we're unraveling it together. So is there yeah, more just, you want to share? Uh, yeah, please go ahead. Oh, um, well, I'm just looking at some of the notes I made. And um, no, I think we've covered a lot of ground. And, you know, if somebody did want to reach out to me also and talk personally, I'm, of course, I'm a public figure, I'm available. <laughs> so uh, yeah, happy to lend my past experience to the cause. <laughs> and um, um, is there anything from when you, anything left to like to wrap up from when you left to like the life you've created that brought you to present day that you want to, to speak to listeners in terms of um, uh, the, the, who you had to become to create a new life after leaving your community? Well, I think I did really have to become spiritual in the real sense. I had to rely on the creator of the universe to take care of me and make sure I was going to, you know, uh, I embarked on a new career, a new life, a, a new everything. And it, it worked out. I think a lot of people are probably really afraid that they wouldn't have their identity anymore. But you know, there, in fact, Bhajan used to always use that as a threat. Like if you leave, you're going to go back to the way you were. Well, you know what? Maybe that was really good. <laughs> Maybe you started out just okay, but you happened to get involved with somebody who told you you were wrong, you know, every waking hour. And so you can reinvent yourself. It's never too late. And um, uh, that's why I can't even understand some of these people in their 70s and 80s who are still teaching yoga and running the scam. It's like, relax already. Be retired. Just, you know, you know <laughs> just just be, you know, and, and I've learned, you know, through a number of ways, um, you know, the trials and tribulations with my son, that that's where the real spiritual, you know, uh, awareness comes in is, is when you're dealing with life, you know, not some mm -hmm. fantasy, like I'm a yogi on a hill, but when you're really dealing with life and other people, you'll get, you'll get your experience, you'll get your your spiritual brownie points by being nice to other people and by, you know, being helpful. Um, you know, one of the greatest things that Sikhs do is they feed the homeless, right? The, the lungers were set up to feed, you know, do stuff like that. Focus, mm. get, get out of yourself and focus on other people. <laughs> mm -hmm. Realize that you might just be just fine, made perfect yeah. and get yeah. out there and be kind, have your life, right? Be, be your, your living, your living prayer. That, that was just beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you want to share with us um, an intro us into your song? Oh, yes, I know it's the tradition. And I wanted to pick something that and I, you know, I'm a real music person. So the choices were almost overwhelming. But um, I picked George Harrison's uh, song, My Sweet Lord. It is so simple. It's so profound in its simplicity. Um, a lot of people know the song where towards the end, he chants a number of different mantras, but he says, my sweet Lord, um, I really want to see you. I really want to be with you, but it takes so long. And so that just that longing, that longing mm -hmm. to belong, that longing to connect with God and our higher consciousness. I just thought it was such a beautiful song. Mm. So well said and why so many people um, got in and stayed in, in, in the Dharma for so long. So, um, and, and it's just a part of the soul in whatever way we interpret it. Right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and share. Uh, George Harrison. My sweet Lord. 
And as always, for copyright purposes, we don't play the whole song, but you can uh, listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations, uh, Uncomfortable Conversations podcast playlist to hear the beautiful songs that every uh, guest has offered and brought to our atmosphere. Katara, this has just been such a wonderful, enlightening and um, burst of um, puzzle pieces coming together. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us. Yes, and I hope it inspires more people to continue to archive and explain what happened. <laughs> yeah, and from your own personal lens, remember, you know, there is no um, there is no hierarchy of our experiences and of our pain and of our trauma. And the more we're able to like share our perspective of what happened during the decades we were involved, um, it pierces somebody else's perspective to remembrance, to remember something that maybe is trapped in inside, and we don't even. Remember, I know, absolutely know that the hollow, the Halloween story you shared today, there are going to be people that listen to this podcast that remember, and they're going to start bringing up all the, uh, the costumes. So thank you for that. There was so much richness and um, the early memories too of um, non-actives or these classes. I know that really came alive for me. Um, Thank you for that. And um, Once again, if you are listening to this podcast, I want to encourage you to share your story. And if you do want to um, tell your story, um, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. Remember, there's not good enough stories. Your story is enough because you experienced it. Um, This podcast is really a platform for us to tell the untold stories. It's not about me researching what actually happened to you. It's about you sharing what happened for you while being involved um, in the Kundalini Yoga 3HO community at whatever time that happened. So please reach out if um, you are ready to share your experience. And if you'd like to donate and support this broadcast, please um, make a donation at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. There's a PayPal link and you can support the podcast and you can listen to the Spotify playlist in the show notes as well. Thank you again. Please like subscribe and share this podcast with a friend and do me a favor and review the podcast. It really makes a difference in circulating um, the podcast to other people that don't even know it exists. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you again on the next episode.